First Timothy chapter three. I always wear a suit coat on sun, on Wednesday nights, but I don't usually wear a suit. I'm very dressed up for sun, for Wednesday night. And uh, but I was uh, um, Henrico actually um, appointed, hired. I don't know what the what the exact right word is, but a new fire chief. And um, he asked me to come and do the invocation for his swearing-in ceremony this afternoon. I was very privileged to be able to do that. And uh, God's given us really some good opportunities with the uh, chaplain, chaplain C, the chaplain program, and uh, being able to branch out into some other things as well because of it. And so um, looking forward to that. I'm actually going to a, um, on a Fort Lee Army Base tomorrow morning. They're doing a prayer breakfast down there, and they invited me to come and be a part of that as well. And so uh, we'll be doing that first thing tomorrow morning for a few hours. And uh, again, just, just great opportunities, and um, not, not out there trying to make a name for myself or anything like that, but obviously, the, the, this is a little bit loud, turn it down, thank you, um, but the, um, just, just uh, the more opportunities God gives us, the more opportunities we have to get the gospel out, so uh, we'll take them and we'll use them, and uh, we'll just trust that, that God knows what's best, and so uh, I wanna, what I want to talk about tonight, and I usually, uh, I have a lot of Bible verses that we turn to, and I'm not going to do that tonight. I really want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about over the next couple weeks. Um, but uh, really what I, what I want to talk about, and this is, this is right along with the whole idea of what it means to be a Baptist, and we just went through that entire thing. We used that acrostic, what, it, you know, uh, what are the Baptist distinctives, and we're not going to review those tonight just for the sake of time. But um, I want to talk about the meaning of biblical fundamentalism, and um, it's, it's very misunderstood. It's, very, it's being distorted. Um, you have neo-independent Baptists. You have new independent Baptists, a lot of things that are changing, and, um, and really uh, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if hesitancy is the right word, but really it's just, it's just around the word Fundamentalist. I consider myself to be an independent fundamental Baptist, and of course now it's being defined as IFB, you know, and uh, people, are, people are using that as a disparaging term, you know, you're an IFB, and, and um, you know, and, and there are certain, there are certain uh, just like there is within any dom- denomination that, that gives it a bad name for certain, for certain reasons and because of certain things. Um, but the whole movement, if, and I don't even really like using that word movement, but um, the, whole, the whole idea of being an independent fundamental Baptist um, is being distorted. And so I want to I really kind of set the record straight, talk about what it is. And so, uh, because again, we live in a day when fundamental or fundamentalists have been misused, it's been abused, it's been misapplied, both in, in our secular and as, as well as within Christianity. But the word fundamental simply means of central importance or affecting the underlying principles and structure of something. That word fundamental has been used for years and years and years to mean the exact same thing, right? When we hear the, the news media talks about Islamic fundamentalists, we automatically think of terrorists, right? Because they are holding true. When we hear of radical fundamentalists, we think of people who are off base in some extreme or, or harmful way. But the connotation that has led a lot of Americans to fear that word fundamental or to, to question those who claim to be fundamental when it ta- pertains to their belief in the Bible. But, but think about it this way. If, if you were to take the example of a, a basketball coach who believes in the fundamentals of basketball, you would not have any hesitancy to applaud that coach, right? To say, man, there's a coach who, who sticks with the fundamentals of basketball. 
And what does that mean? It means he's teaching, he's teaching them how to pass, how to shoot, how to play defense, how to play offense, and, and doing that in a fundamental way. And you might imagine somebody that's focusing on those things. Those are the fundamentals of basketball. They are of central importance. If you're not teaching somebody how to do that in basketball, you're not teaching them the fundamentals, and they're not going to learn how to play basketball very well. So, in fact, those skills are so important when it comes to the structure of that sport that if you compromise or if you change that or if you forget that, you're not going to have the sport of basketball. You might have some other game that's similar to the sport of basketball. You might have another game that is an offshoot of the game of basketball, but you don't have the game of basketball anymore when you get away from the fundamentals of what basketball is and so what the original sport of basketball was intended to be. And again, that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about a fundamentalist or somebody who is a fundamental Christian. We are literally just focusing around the central importance of the Word of God, the doctrines of the Word of God. So we're, we're going to discuss this idea really for three primary reasons, and I want to give you those uh, tonight as we, as we head into this and really before we get into the lesson tonight. But the, the first reason why is for those Christians that are seeking to understand more clearly what biblical fundamentalism truly is. And again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misconception around that idea of being a biblical fundamentalist. There's a lot of confusion today on Bible versions. There's a lot of confusion on Bible interpretation. There's a lot of confusion on ecumenical relationships. And there's, there's, a, there's a vast movement out there that's trying to water down the truth. And, you know, to blend all of the religions together for the sake of unity and for the sake of tolerance. And that is not Christianity. We're, we're moving away. When you move away from the fundamentals, you are moving away from what it actually is. You're moving away from the things that are of central importance. And the more you move away from those things, it's a dangerous course. It's quickly going to take us away from what biblical Christianity is all about. Not all roads lead to the same place. Not all religions are teaching the truth. Not, and and, and I don't, I'm going to try not to get sidetracked on some of these things, uh, but there's so many of these things that are out there in our culture today. You know, well, you just need to find your truth. No, you need to find your truth. You need to find the truth. It doesn't matter what you think the truth is. It matters what the Bible says the truth is, and whatever you think doesn't matter when it comes to comparing it to the Word of God. If it lines up with the Word of God, then you're right. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then you're wrong, and it doesn't matter what your truth happens to be. So hopefully that'll clarify for us what a fundamental Bible-believing Christian really is. That's the first reason. The second reason is that there are those that are outside of biblical fundamentalism attempting to redefine who we are. And uh, again, the secular media, the liberal elite of our culture are trying to redefine those who believe the Bible literally, and they say that we're extreme, or they say that we're even dangerous, right? Again, it's the ones who are, who are preaching what has been preached for hundreds and hundreds of years from the Bible, but because culture has changed in the last 25 years, and the mindset around a lot of these things that the Bible preaches and teaches against, or for that matter, even the things that the Bible preaches and teaches in favor of, has changed culturally, and so religion has changed along with it, but the Bible didn't change. So when we continue to preach the things that are in the Bible that have been preached for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, all of a sudden we're extreme and we're dangerous. And that's not the case. We're just trying to stick to the fundamentals of the Word of God. It's going to hopefully help us to see through the smoke and mirrors of the secular world and, and help us to truly understand that uh, the, the ideas that Bible-believing Christians hold to. 
And we've already talked about some of that when it comes to the Baptist distinctive, so we're not going to spend a lot of time necessarily speaking directly to those. But biblical fundamentalists are no more dangerous or extreme than a basketball coach that's holding to the fundamentals of basketball. And so regardless of how they look at us from the outside or what they perceive us to be from the outside or how they are trying to redefine us from the outside, it's no different than what we've always been. We simply believe the basic doctrines and the values of the Bible, and that's what we're going to explore as we, as we get through uh, these lessons over the next few weeks. So the third reason then why it's necessary to help us understand these things and why we're going to discuss these is because there are those within biblical fundamentalism who are trying to redefine who we are. And um, as, we, as we get into it, I, I, I'm going to give you some names of some people who are kind of leading that charge and leading the charge away from what the Bible is te- teaches and what we have always uh, stood for. So um, th- th- there are those who are polarizing around personalities and polarizing around methodologies or institutions. And, and again, it's, it's a lot of times and it's, it's, um, it's, it's an attempt to build a greater constituency around themselves and, and try to gather more people to, to themselves or you know, gain more popularity or whatever else. There's a lot of different reasons why people do that, but we're hearing the word fundamental applied to personal preferences or matters of taste rather than to the unchanging truth of the Word of God. And we have to protect that at all costs. So the truths that we're going to look at over the next few weeks are just, uh, just as much a fundamental part of our American history as they are a part of our, our Christianity. Uh, and again, it's not that we're coming up with something new. It's not that we're trying to redefine who we are. It's not that, we're, that we've gone more extreme. It's just that we feel... Like, this is what the Bible says, this is what we've always stood for, this is what we've always believed, and as the world and Christianity changes, we're not changing. And so that, that gives us a bad perception in a lot of ways, but this, this is what has always been taught and preached. And so tonight, I, I really want to give you the first in this little, I say series, it's really more of a mini-series that's kind of a, a part of this series and what it means to be a Baptist, but it's the topic that we're going to look at tonight, and it's really kind of the, the overall theme of the entire thing, which is the meaning of biblical fundamentalism. I want to give you a little bit of history with that tonight, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3 there, I want to kind of set the table or give you a little bit of a background into exactly what we're talking about here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse number 15, who wrote the book of 1 Timothy? Say it. Paul, right, right. And who was he writing to? Timothy, right? Timothy was a young preacher boy, if you will, under Paul's ministry. Paul was helping to train Timothy. And so a lot of, uh, uh, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, are considered to be the pastoral epistles. He was essentially training Timothy how to be a pastor. And of course, then Paul did leave him in different places, and he was able to continue on that work. But that will give you a little bit of context into what we're talking about here. Now, does anybody else, and you can probably look at this in your Bible and see this, but what else do we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3? What do we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3? The qualifications for a pastor and the qualifications for a deacon, right? So that's the, that's the context of the chapter. Verse number 15 says this, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed down in the world, received up into glory. Now, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. 
He was not yelling at Timothy for, for running around in the auditorium and jumping on the chairs. That's not what he was saying. You better behave yourself. He wasn't, telling him, he wasn't talking to him that way. He was saying and, and talking about the idea of what a church ought to be and the way a church ought to function and the way a church ought to run. So in our, in our text here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy with respect to the church. And he's reminding Timothy that the church is to be the pillar and the ground of truth. If the church is not doing that, then what else do you have that you can fall back on? If the church is not the pillar and the ground of truth, then where can you turn? Right now, obviously, we always have the Word of God. We have the Bible, and that is our, that is our, our ultimate truth. And there are plenty of churches out there who are not standing on the truth of the Word of God, and so they're, not, they're ultimately not the pillar and the ground of truth. But that's what the church is intended to be, and that's what it's supposed to be. And I believe that without Bible-believing churches, America would collapse. And that's why we're seeing America collapsing now, because we're moving away from this Bible-believing, and we're moving more into preferences and more into uh, seeker-friendly things where we'll do whatever we have to do to get people to come in, and as long as people are coming in, then we're successful. And that's not the case. Yes, we want people to come in. Absolutely, we want people to come in, and we should be doing everything we can to try to get them to come in. But it's not... It's not the pragmatism idea where the ends justify the means. And if that means that we got to get up and dance around on the stage and have all this contemporary Christian music, then we'll do it if it's going to bring people in. Or, you know, if, if we just uh, do this or do that or whatever else it is that, that they're doing in these new modern churches today to try to get people in. And it's working. They're getting people in, but they're not giving them the truth. And that church is not the pillar and the ground of truth. It's a country club with a, with a Christian name on it. Well, if you can call it that, you know, the rock or the bridge, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a generic name for a country club, you know? I mean, even country clubs are more specific about what they are than a lot of these churches nowadays. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16, Paul is elaborating on the truth. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So in this, in this verse here, Paul is, Paul is giving a first century statement of faith, if you will. We have a statement of faith for our church, but he's, he's claiming the fundamentals of the faith that God became a man, right? And that Christ Jesus, as the God-man, was crucified. He rose again the third day. I mean, Paul is laying down some fundamentals here, and uh, he was telling Timothy, these are the things that you need to be standing on, Right? So he's reminding Timothy that the church is supposed to be the pillar and the ground of truth. But in our day, what's happening is these truths are being tested. They're being, they're being um, questioned everywhere. And it's vital that we know what the truths are, that we know what we believe, and we know why we believe those things. Right? We've been doing a series for a long time. And I mean, there's a lot of different offshoots going in a lot of different directions. But what, what I believe and why? It's important to know why we say we believe the things that we believe. And, well, that's just what my church teaches is not a good enough answer. Well, it's somewhere in the Bible. That's not a good enough answer. You need to know why you believe the things that you believe. Otherwise, you're going to get somebody to come in here and start teaching things that are moving away from those fundamentals, and you're just going to follow them because you don't even know why you believe what you believe in the first place. So Christians have to not only attend biblically fundamental churches, but they have to adhere to the fundamental truths and the doctrines of the Bible if we want to truly stand for our faith. 
and where they start moving away from those fundamentals, we either need to do everything we can to try to bring them back to that, or we, we need to leave. Because if, it's, if we're not preaching the fundamentals of the faith, if we're not preaching those truths of the Word of God, then we shouldn't be there. Something has to change. And of course, if our Christian life is... Well, let me say it this way. Thank God for the exterior manifestations of an inward change, right? When God changes our heart, it ought to change the way we look on the outside, too. But if your Christian life is, is just about an exterior look and you don't know the scriptures, you don't know, you know, uh, the, the Bible and the, the verses that form your beliefs, then you're a very, very shallow Christian. And we, we need a clear understanding of the basic doctrines of the Word of God. But then number three, the, the primary question about fundamentalism is this. What is your authority? What is your authority? And, of course, the very, very first thing that we talked about when it came to what it means to be a Baptist is what? Biblical authority. Right? The Bible ought to be our authority. But what's happening so many times is that it's the Bible plus tradition. Or it's the Bible plus preferences. Or it's the Bible plus whatever else that happens to be. And if your final authority is the Bible, then you're going to believe and you're going to follow the truths that are central and foundational in the Bible. Whether or not the media or the intellectual elite or the, uh, the so-called uh, um, you know, theologians, and, and they're the ones, honestly, that drive a lot of this uh, fundamentalism away from the Bible. Or I shouldn't even say fundamentalism. They're not driving fundamentalism. They're driving Christians away from fundamentalism because of the things that they're teaching and preaching and writing books about and everything else. But, um, you know, wh whatever they say about it, there's nothing to fear about a fundamental Bible-believing Christian because we are essential to the foundation of Christianity. Adhering to the fundamental teaching of the Word of God is what made America great. Now, let me give you some examples here. And, uh, again, I I'm being very practical tonight, but uh, I say spiritual at the same time. I'm not using a lot of Bible verses to talk about these things tonight because we're kind of giving you a broad view of it. But there's, there's not only a lot of different isms in the world, uh, but there's, a, there's also a lot of fundamentalisms in the world. And if you think about it for, a, for just a few seconds, to try to think of some other fundamentalist that you know that, that would be different from Baptist, independent Baptist fundamentalist, whatever. Uh, obviously, I mentioned one a little bit earlier, but we've all been awakened to the idea of Islamic fundamentalists, Right? Um, an Islamic fundamentalist is somebody who takes particular portions of the Koran um, and, you know, portions from clerics to a literal extreme that leads them to go on these jihadist missions. And, you know, uh, that's what, uh, honestly, that's what led to 9-11. That's what has led to a lot of these terrorist attacks and a lot of these other places as well, right? It's Islamic fundamentalism. But they are going back to the fundamentals of their faith. There's Mormon fundamentalists, right? Those Mormon fundamentalists would take the Book of Mormon and claim it to be equal with the Bible. Uh, the Mormon fundamentalists would believe the book, Doctrines and Covenants, and in section 132, verse 61, it says, you may espouse as many virgins as you like without committing adultery. Well, that's where they get the idea of polygamy, right? And now there, a lot of them are trying to distance themselves from that because, well, we, you know, things have changed. You know, we don't believe that anymore. But if you are a a Mormon fundamentalist, then you will believe that because it's there and it's in their book and they haven't, it, it, it can't be changed. A fundamentalist Mormon would believe the Journal of Discourses. Volume 1, page 121 says, Remember that God, our Heavenly Father, was once a child and mortal 
like we are and rose step by step in the scale of progress, right? That's what a Mormon fundamentalist is going to believe. Fundamentalist Mormon would say they believe the Journal of Discourses that was written by Brigham Young, volume 10, page 223, says the Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself. Now, we've, we've, we've gone all the way through the Book of Mormon and, and uh, talked a lot about the different ideas of Mormonism and everything else. I'm not trying to do that tonight, but what I'm saying is there's fundamentalist Mormons. And those fundamentalist Mormons are going to get in and uh, get into their books and their doctrines and everything else, and they're going to hold to those things. But there's, there's examples of groups that believe the basic central teachings of their religions, and we have examples of that all over the place. There are examples of how following a lie can lead down uh, a very dangerous and a very destructive path. I mean, honestly, you have, you have cults that get started and books that are written within those cults, and those people follow those things, and they, they're, they're making their way down a very, very dangerous path. But and I think in the same way, a fundamentalist Christian is somebody who believes the central basic truths of the Bible, somebody who has chosen to make the Bible his final authority for life. We're not using the Bible plus some traditions that the church has done for years. We're not using the Bible plus some confessions. We're not using the Bible plus uh, like what the Jews do. The, Bible's, uh, the Jews use uh, the Old Testament and the Talmud, and the Talmud is a a commentary of the Old Testament. And what's happened is you've got commentary on the commentary on the commentary of the Old Testament. And what they say is that the average Christian knows more of the Old Testament than the Jews do because they know so well the Talmud, which is all the commentary on the Old Testament, that they don't even know the Old Testament, right? But that's, that's what we're talking about. We're just uh, getting back to the basic, fundamental, central truths of the Bible. Biblical fundamentalism has everything to do with what somebody believes about the Word of God. Biblical fundamentalism is, is what's going to be, uh, is what separates those who believe God's Word is infallible from those who question the Word of God. We're going to talk a little bit about the history here in just a second, or the birth of fundamentalism in America. Um, and we're going to see that there are a lot of people who have questioned the, the legitimacy of the Bible. Uh, but it separates, that biblical fundamentalism is going to be what separates those who believe the Bible as a final authority from those who accept some other authority, uh, like papal authority or personal experience or any of these other things. So how did fundamentalism in America come around? Well, over 100 years ago, and here's a name that you'll recognize, Charles Spurgeon battled for Bible beliefs in London. Um, it, it's, it became known as the downgrade controversy. What was happening, and there was a lot of things that were happening in, in, uh, in the world at that time, and, in, and I say in the world, but really in, in Christianity in general um, around that time. But uh, he stood against the theologians and pastors in the Baptist Union who began to accept evolution as a way of creation. Now, I know that sounds to be completely opposite of each other. How do you accept evolution as a way of creation? Well, what, what they... What happened was, and, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, but the idea of evolution was introduced as a scientific fact. And because evolution was an alternative to creation, which is what the Bible very plainly says in the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe in evolution, then you have already uh, distance yourself from the Word of God based on the very first verse that we find in the Bible. But what happened is the idea of evolution came about and all of these, not just theological liberals, but anybody who, who wanted to try to in any way oppose this, the, the Bible uh, jumped on this idea of evolution. Well, then it kind of made the Christians look like they were a little 
you know, backward. They were a little bit uh, out, of, out of touch with, with uh, what was going on in the scientific world. So they started trying to marry the idea of evolution to creation. And uh, believe it or not, Schofield is one of the ones who jumped on that and, uh, and, and introduced what, was, what is known as the day-age theory, where basically uh, one day was not a 24-hour period like we know it to be and like what we believe in the Bible, but one day was an age. So God created the plants and then allowed them to uh, evolve in this age, and then he went on to the next thing. And... and created the animals, and they were able to evolve through that whole process. And it wasn't just a 24-hour period. It was an age. It was an era. And so they believed that God created those things, but then they, then they tried to marry that with the idea of evolution. Well, that just really started making everybody question everything that they knew about the Bible. And so Charles Spurgeon preached against that false teachings and, and, and ultimately led a, a great number of people out of the Baptist Union when the members of the Baptist Union would not sign a statement of faith declaring that the theory of evolution was against the Bible. Well, and this was, this was Baptist. This was back in the 1800s. So that encroachment of theological liberalism was not limited to England. It found its way to America. And fundamental Bible doctrine was generally well known. It was, for the most part, believed in America. You didn't need fundamentalism because everything was fundamentalism. It was just Christianity. It's just what it was. There was no such thing as fundamental Christians and then liberal Christians or whatever else because it was just that's what, if you were a Christian, this is what you believed, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take long for you to go to uh, Washington, D.C. and start walking around a lot of those monuments and a lot of the Bible verses that, that uh, are foundational to our Christianity are etched all over the place, inside the Capitol, inside the you know, inside the White House on, on the Supreme Court building. I mean, all over the place you see Bible verses etched on those buildings. And it just, you know, just again, just proves that, that uh, fundamental Bible doctrine was generally well known and, and believed in early America. But fundamentalism as a movement really didn't gain any, uh, any steam uh, or any momentum until after the Civil War. Because after the Civil War, a great theological compromise also started to take hold in our country. And German rationalism began to find its way into the American pulpits. If, if there's anything that has been a huge detriment to Christianity, it's this German theological mindset. And I'm not blaming the Germans. I'm just saying that that was really kind of where the birth of a lot of this theological liberalism was. That's where a lot of it started. And Americans started going over there to these German universities and coming back with a huge skepticism of the Bible and of the doctrines of the faith, and then those are the ones who started getting into these institutions of higher learning where, you know, you had places like Harvard that was, you know, started to train preachers, and now all of a sudden Harvard is not even, is not even doesn't have anything to do with Christianity at all. How does that happen? It happens because you allow this theological liberalism to get in. Everybody starts questioning everything about the Bible instead of just believing it by faith, which, by the way, the Bible has never been disproven, ever. Not in one area of science, not in one area of archaeology, not in one area of anything has the Bible been disproven. There's been many times when they thought they've disproven the Bible, but then it always turns out that, the, that whoever it was that was disproving the Bible ended up getting proven wrong later on. The Bible has never been proven wrong. And so 
This German rationalism was a movement that began in the 1700s with these German scholars and religious leaders, and they were trying to marry secular thought with biblical teaching. And the intention was to bring secular reason to biblical teaching and essentially to remove the divine, to remove the miraculous from the word of God. And when you follow that course, the scripture became subject to human reasoning. And when you, when you subject it to human reasoning, now it's, uh, you know, it's, it makes the mind the final authority rather than the truth of the word of God. And that movement was nothing less than a direct spiritual attack on the Christian faith. But it was, it was around that time, the, the late 1800s, when a lot of these theologically liberal ideas began to swirl in Europe, in Germany, and made their way to America. Well, a lot of German scholars of that day were prejudiced against the scriptures. And I'll read you a few quotes. I'll give you a picture of this guy because he was one that was very well known. His name was Immanuel Kant. But he wrote in the late 1700s that, quote, a man's conscience was equal to the word of God. A man's conscience is equal to the, world of, to, to the word of God. He questioned uh, the, the atonement of Jesus Christ. He questioned a lot of other things that, that got people thinking in that direction. But other theologi- uh, theologians in the school of so-called higher criticism began to question all of the rest of the foundational doctrines of God's word. One, one of those guys was a, was a guy by the name of Frederick Schrielmacher. If that's not a German name, I don't know what is. But he said, doctrine is only the expression of feeling. The Bible is not our final authority. When you start making statements like that, you are treading on very, very dangerous ground. The Bible is not our final authority. It's your mind. It's what you think. Well, that's what that's. Why do you think there's people running around saying, find your truth? You know, live your truth. It's, it started in, in, in there. Another one, his name was uh, Ernst Trollscht. But he said in the early 1900s, quote, that evolution was the unfolding of the new out of the old and that Jesus Christ was merely a symbol of the highest truth someone can know. In essence, they they were not only questioning, but they were beginning to literally tear apart the word of God in their seminaries and in their conferences all over Europe. And eventually it made its way to America. And again, that movement questioned every literal detail of the Bible. The Bible said it. Well, now we need to question it and, and, and see if we can prove whether it's right or not. And if we can't prove it, then it's wrong. And that, I mean, if, if, you're, if, you could, if you can take any part of the Bible and say that you don't believe it for this reason or that reason or whatever, then you can do that with the entire rest of the Bible. Or at the very least, you can't tell somebody else that they can't do that with the entire rest of the Bible because that's exactly what you've just done. Uh, but then in 19, or sorry, 1859, Charles Darwin published the book called The Origin of the Species. By the way, Charles Darwin was not the first one to come up with the theory of evolution. Charles Darwin was the one who popularized the theory of evolution in his book, The Origin of the Species. Um, And a lot of people, as I kind of mentioned already, including so-called clergy, uh, began to hold to the concept of evolution. One of those men, out of many, who started to propagate this liberalism was a guy by the name of William Rainey Harper. He was the founder of Chicago University, and there's actually a university that's named after him now. But he said this, we need to recognize the humanity of Jesus and the mistakes of Jesus, and we need to stress the dignity and the divinity of man. If that is not taking everything that the Bible teaches and everything that is the fundamentals of the faith and taking Jesus, who is God, and trying to bring him down to human level and taking man who is human, and bringing him up to the God level, 
then you've turned everything in the word of God on its head. And then nothing is sacred, nothing is truth, nothing is fundamental anymore. But I think it's pretty interesting to note, too, that these same liberal themes and the same rationalism is still being taught in seminaries, still being preached in pulpits all the way across America to this day. But a lot of those main, mainline denominations can never be classified as fundamental because they, you know, their preachers are denying the fundamental truths of the Word of God. But in the face of compromise in the late 1800s and the early 1900s came the rise of what became known as biblical fundamentalism and biblical fundamentalists. Because when all of this was going on, you had a whole group of people who were starting to say, hang on, why are we questioning the Bible through a secular lens? Why are we trying to prove the Bible through secular theology or secular, uh, secular terminology? Why do we have to prove the Bible in this way? The Bible stands on its own two feet. The Bible stands for itself. We don't need uh, other people doing that. So uh, God stirred the hearts of men who were faithfully serving him. Turn over to Jude, and there's only one chapter in Jude. But these men took a stand on the word of God, and they followed the teaching that we find in Jude, verse 13. Jude 13. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. <clears throat> what happened was they began to earnestly contend for the faith again. Where before they didn't really have to because everybody who was a Christian believed essentially the same thing. They believed those fundamentals. They believed that Jesus was God. They believed that he died on the cross. They believed that he rose from the dead. They believed in the virgin birth. They believed that the Bible was the final authority. Now, you had all this theological liberalism that was swirling all over the place, and it became necessary for them to take a final stand, if you will, against all of those things. And so they began to, they started to earnestly contend for the truth through preaching in their own pulpits, but they started to host Bible conferences, and they started to publish books, and they started newspapers that were crying out against this rationalism and this theological liberalism. And not all, but, but a lot of the things that we still see in existence today when it comes to publications and everything else got, its, got their start back then uh, because there was such a necessity to stand up against those things. Well, beginning in, the, in 1878, and I know this goes a ways back, but the Premillennial Bible Conference and also what became known as the Niagara, Niagara Bible Conferences and maybe some of these are, are names that you'll recognize, but you had A.J. Gordon. He was a, he was a pastor from Boston. Um, you had um, John Duffield. He was, a, he was from Princeton College. Hudson Taylor. He founded the China Inland Mission. Uh, W.E. Blackstone. He was a Methodist preacher who wrote the book, Jesus is Coming. It was a bestseller in that area. A lot of others that were around there, too, names that you would recognize and names that you uh, would at least know whether or not you know who they were, but... Uh, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these men who came out in strong stand of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity and especially uh, the Word of God. They were all men who rejected this allegorical, uh, allegorical rationalism um, and this rationalistic approach to the Bible. They believed the Word of God to be the truth as it was the literal Word of God. And so during those conferences, though, a lot of these fundamentalist leaders created Statement of faith, statements of faith, I guess is probably the best way to, to do it, but that affirmed their belief in everything that I just mentioned when it comes to the authority of the Word of God, the, the literal return of Jesus Christ, and, 
and the, the, you know, the, the duty of Christians everywhere to preach the message of the gospel. And they laid down those fundamentals. And so the impact of those conferences was, was very profound. It was a great book. If you, if you, uh, it's, it's pretty thick, and I think, uh, I think I had to read it when I was in college, but I, I, I referenced it again and found a lot of great information in it. But it's called uh, In Pursuit of Purity. And David Beale was the guy that wrote that, but, but this is what he said uh, was a result of the Niagara Bible Conference. There was five um, major outcomes, and I'm just going to read them to you because uh, this is what he said. But number one, the conference spawned new missionary activity and evangelism. Number two, the conference contributed to the rise and spread of large Bible conference movements. Number three, the conference had a significant impact on the rise of the Bible Institute and Bible College movement. Number four, the conference gave early expression to fundamentalism's emphasis on concentrated Bible study. And he says, number five, that the conference precipitated a vast amount of fundamentalist literature, especially on the subject of prophecy, the person and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and missions. What a great uh, uh, um, emphasis. And honestly, where before there was no need for that, there was no necessity of that, now there was because of this theological liberalism. And honestly, it's just as much of a need for that today as there ever has been because it's only getting worse. Where, you know, where before all of those ideas had been introduced and everything else, now they're here and they're here to stay because of so many different uh, uh, institutions that are doing that. Let me, let me share with you one quote, and, and we'll be closing up here very quickly. But he, he said this. Um, this is an account uh, from somebody who attended this Niagara Bible Conference. And he said this. Those were the days of Brooks and West and Parsons and Erdman and Moorhead and Nicholson and Needham and Gordon. Oh, what discussions were held in those days. How the Lord Jesus Christ was exalted, how the Holy Spirit was honored, and how the Bible was expounded. The bread of life broken and distributed at the Niagara Bible Conferences, feeding the children of God in this land to this day. There have been Bible conferences since, all stimulated by this one, but they have been like so many steepings of the same tea. So after the turn of the century, you had a lot of these men that began to emphasize the fundamentals, as they were called. And this is, you can see where the idea of fundamentalism is starting to get its rise. But R.A. Torrey, that's a name you'll recognize, wrote a lot of books about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, T.T. Shields, uh, J. Frank Norris, uh, a lot of these men, and, and men that, that, um, that hopefully at least a little bit you recognize their names. But when they stood to preach on, on the fundamentals, nobody questioned what they were saying about the Word of God, because it was just, it was the Word of God, and that's what they were teaching and preaching. And so those and a lot of others took a strong stand against liberalism, took a a strong stand against rationalism, and they earnestly contended for the faith and defended the fundamental doctrines of God's Word. But the thing is, most of those men died before 1950. This happened in the late 1800s, early to middle 1900s, and so by 1950, a lot of these men who were the first and the early fundamentalists died by 1950. Since the 1950s, a lot of different Baptist groups have come into existence, but most of those Baptist groups came out of other Baptist groups that were turning away from fundamental doctrines and becoming increasingly allegorical or, or rationalistic in, in their approach to the Bible. And so what's happened is, though, as, as a result of these men standing for the fundamentals, there are over 13,000 independent fundamental Baptist churches in the United States. And that number is dwindling because a lot of them are changing from what they used to be. Sadly, even those that would be what we would consider in our circle of, of influence, in our circle of, of friends, 
that are changing from, become, from being independent fundamental Baptists to taking that name off or, you know, we, we're, we're still Baptists, but we're not independent fundamental Baptists because we don't like the connotation that comes along with that. We don't want people to get the wrong idea of who we are or whatever else. And, and uh, you know, a lot of those things are, are changing and moving. But what a rich history we have as Bible-believing Christians. That's, you know, the, the fight that they had to go through and the things that these men had to stand for. What a great heritage of faith that's been handed down to us. So what was it that they were contending for? Was it, was it the architectural style of a church building? Was it the color of the pews? Was it the, you know, the color of the walls? Um, you know, their favorite personalities or institutions? Were they, were they contending for preference or, or taste? No, they were, they were, you know, they were fighting for what they believed, and they were fighting a greater enemy for a greater truth. They were trying to take back what was trying to be, what, what had been changed, and that was the, the, the great fundamental doctrines that we find in the Word of God. And, and maybe for, for somebody who's a non-Christian looking at it from the outside, you know, were they, were they uh, I guess the question would be, were they contending for something dangerous, right? Because now, if you're a fundamentalist, if you're a Christian fundamentalist, you're extreme, you're dangerous, you're, you know, you're one of these uh, Bible thumpers or, or whatever else they, they want to say about it. You, you're the ones that need to be, uh, you know, eliminated. You're the far right conspiracy. And, it, and, and it's, I mean, we're not, we're not even political, right? But, but you're dangerous if you believe the fundamentals of the Bible. Considering today's misuse of that word fundamental in secular media, what were these men fighting for? They were literally fighting for the fundamentals of the truth of the word of God. That's not dangerous. That's necessary. Because the more it moves away from that, the further you get away from that, the less you have Christianity. And the more Christianity dies, the less you have to pass on to the next generation. And eventually, there will be no Christianity at all. We have got to stand for the fundamentals of the faith. It's not just about preference. It's not just about, you know, uh, we need to do it because of this or that. We've got to do it because if we don't, there will be no Christianity to pass on to the next generation. The more you water it down. I mean, it's like, it's like if, you take, um, if you were to take a, a glass of Kool-Aid, let's say, and you take a, a, an empty glass and you dump half of the glass of Kool-Aid in it and half a glass of water in it, you still have Kool-Aid, but it's very, very watered down. Right? Now you take that one and mix that with another half glass of water, and it's still Kool-Aid, but now it's watered down even more. And now you take that glass and you dump it in there, with, and eventually you really can't even taste the Kool-Aid in it at all, and they still call it Kool-Aid, but it's not. Right? And that's exactly what's happening when we're passing these things down to the next generation. If we don't take a stand on the fundamentals of the faith and stand for those things that we find in the Word of God and hold those standards high in every aspect of what we're doing, then eventually it gets so watered down that what you have is not even Christianity anymore. And now you have a whole group of people who are still gathering, they're still getting together for church, they're still doing all these things, but what they're, but what they're doing is not Christianity, it's just a country club, it's just a gathering. And so it's not that, it's not that we are dangerous or that we're trying to stand up because we love controversy or because we like to be you know, in the minority or any of those things. It's because if we don't do it, then who's going to? And if you don't hold that line and you start letting that line go, the next generation is going to let it go even more 
and the next generation is going to let it go even more, and eventually you don't have anything that resembles what we find in the Word of God as Christianity. So that's what we're going to discuss over the next few weeks. We're going to find out uh, that quite the opposite of what the um, perception of independent fundamental Baptists is, is, is actually the opposite of what a lot of people think. These, these men were fighting for the very truth that makes us free, right? Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that's exactly what they were fighting for, and that's exactly what we need to continue fighting for today. We'll talk some more about this as we get into it uh, over the next couple of weeks. But let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you again. We thank you for what these men uh, that went on before us stood for, what they were willing to fight for, what they were willing to lose in order to preserve the truth that we find in the Word of God. I pray that you'd help us to stand strong on those truths. I pray that you'd help us to never let them bend, never let them slip. And God, that we'd hold the standards high in every aspect of Christianity that, that's been handed to us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to pass on to the next generation a strong, a firm foundation in the Word of God, a strong authority in the Word of God. And God, that, that we would continue to stand for the fundamentals of the faith. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.